Hello and welcome to Take 18, a podcast where we love to talk about movies because we love movies. <laughs> and we sure do now, especially with the uh, stay-at-home orders where we've got nothing really to do other than watch movies and read books. But this is a show that is uh, produced by the Central Coast Film Society. My name is Daniel Lair, the founder and executive director of the Central Coast Film Society. And of course, now, uh, as you're staying at home, you can also be listening to podcasts just like this one. <laughs> so uh, you can enjoy this show. You can enjoy all of our other episodes. Um, and uh, actually, before we had our stay at home order, uh, I was actually able to catch up with Chris Strotter. He's a local art author about uh, he wrote The Daring Decade. And it's a book about the films from the 1970s that changed the face of cinema forever from the early 1970s. And uh, so I had a fascinating, wonderful conversation with Chris and we'll bring that to you in just a bit. I also want to say thank you very much to the Santa Maria Sun for an amazing article that came out today about this very show. Uh, so much appreciated and hope that if you're a new listener checking us out for the first time, go back and check out our other shows. Um, it's a lot of fun and uh, you can subscribe to find out when uh, new episodes are coming out. We try to get them out you know, once a week or so. Um, and then uh, also you could rate this show on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening to us on. Um, we also have a very cool new feature that I want to let everybody know about. If you want to chime in with any comments or questions you want me to tackle, uh, any movies you want me to review for you here on the show, um, just record a message and uh, via that link in the description of the show and I will be happy to put you uh, on the show if you want to be on the show or uh, we'll just uh, take your take your request. So send me a message. We'd love to have you uh, be a part of this. Now, throughout this series, this podcast series, we're going to be looking into movie news, uh, the reviews, of course, whenever we get movies out that we can review, uh, and as well as fantastic, amazing interviews with uh, local artists and local industry professionals. So it's a lot of fun. And we also do Filmmaker Takes, which is talking about just making movies in the process. It's, it's a lot of fun. Hope it's educational and inspirational to you all. But now let's go ahead and just get started with this. So this last week was actually the first weekend at the box office without reporting anything in the United States. Uh, the COVID-19 virus and the stay-at-home orders are uh, doing a pretty big number on uh, the industry and basically the overall world economy right now. So this left studios with their... Um, with an option, uh, they could either push their movies back by several months or they could opt to go in for um, instant video or video on demand uh, right now with all the streaming services that we have. So this is a pretty turbulent time to say the least. Um, also, productions are in effect all shut down everywhere all around the world. And uh, so with no end in sight, this is yeah, it's kind of surreal, I think, for everybody to kind of just be sitting back. Uh, I know a lot of production folks are uh, looking forward to uh, some of the quick actions uh, done by the government to make sure that they are, you know, freelancers, they're still going to be paid and all that. So um, there's a lot that's that's still in the works right now that everybody's kind of, you know, waiting to see what's going to happen. So fingers crossed uh, for all our friends down there in the industry that everything is going to go well for them. Um, so now what we can do at home is just sit back and watch some of our old favorite movies, uh, but also, of course, rent some of those ones that are coming out from the studios. You know, that's uh, that's how they're going to make their money back on on some of those movies because they're the everyone's going to be taking a pretty big hit. But um, yeah, so now let's jump into our interview for the show. It's a lot of fun. We're going to talk about some of the most daring movies from the daring decades in the 1970s. 
Hey, we are now here with Chris Strotter, and he uh, has written a book here about the daring decade of the 1970s. Chris, welcome. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> well, thank you for being here, and we are excited to talk about the daring decade. So tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got started in this, and, and how this book came to be. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I was an eyewitness to the revolution. I was right there as a young teenager starting high school in the early 1970s and I was seeing all of these wonderful movies in theaters and to me they were just dazzling so I started reading the reviews and studying as much as I could in my little high school library and I always stayed true to this topic I was always interested in this decade of movies and I kept watching them re-watching re-re-re-watching them always studying even as I worked on other projects. This is the 10th book I've written in the last 20 years. Oh, wow. But even while I was working on those other books, I would come home and watch one of these old movies again, knowing that I would one day do a project using these movies and all this experience that I had, waiting for the right time. And that right time came in 2017, when I realized that we were just about at the 50th anniversary of these 1970s movies. Yep, yep. And if you went to a movie theater right now, March 1970, exactly 50 years ago, you would have seen three magnificent movies in theaters at the same time, MASH, Patton, and Airport. Those yeah, movies wow. were up for all the Oscars that yep. year. They were huge blockbusters. And real milestone movies. I mean, people still remember these great movies. And that's what I wanted to celebrate was how exciting and influential and sheer, the sheer fun of these movies. And that thus was born my book, The Daring Decade. And your book is, uh, it was split into two volumes because there's just, there's literally too much to put in one book. Yeah, this book covers about 200 movies that came out between 1970 and 1974. And it's not just a collection of simple plot summaries. I don't recycle lame internet trivia or anything like that. I use my own original research, all my own experience with these movies to write essays about each one of the movies that I'm talking about. So uh, it's more, much more than just some simple little compilation of what these movies are about. It's, what the, it's really analyzing and celebrating these movies. That's awesome. So what, what was it that made the 70s so daring? I mean, why, why is it the daring decade? What happened? Well, I thought it was great at the time. Even I knew that these were important movies and I was just a young teenager. Mm -hmm. As I was doing uh, my initial research, I mean, reading these newspaper reviews, I kept running into this phrase, greatest of all time. The French Connection had the greatest car chase of all time. Yeah, yeah. Godfather was the greatest gangster movie of yeah. all time. Exorcist, greatest horror movie of all time. And I realized that's true, that those, as I got older and I saw thousands of movies, I kept coming back realizing these are the greatest years of all time for movies and you know those movies you talked about i think people still keep those titles on those movies too to this day i mean yeah those movies all that i mentioned all yeah, still hold they up. do absolutely but there's an organization called the afi american film institute yep. comprised of hundreds of scholars and famous critics and prominent people working in Hollywood. You would know many of the names. The first president of the organization was Gregory Peck, the legendary actor. Right. Well, this organization conducted two big surveys 10 years apart, 
trying to identify the 100 greatest movies of all time. Both times they did the survey, 10 years apart, in the top 100, there were more movies from the 70s than from any other decade. Wow. Over, over 20% of the movies, all both right. times, came out between 1970 and 1979. All the great ones that you remember, American Graffiti and Chinatown, Godfather, Jaws, Star Wars, Network, all these classics. Yeah. So that kind of validated my own opinion and what I remembered reading at the time in the contemporary reviews that these were great movies. Looking back now, even this august body has recognized these were the greatest years of all time for movies. Yeah, and and so before the 70s, you had the classic Hollywood system. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything from, you know, the real big boom in 1920s to 30s mm -hmm. when Hollywood just exploded. Uh, there was a very strict formula, I think, a very strict structure that mm -hmm. films had to follow and adhere to. And so how did this change? What happened? The success of some movies in the 60s, that's what happened. Um, the old production code, which had been around since 1934, it got sick in the mid-60s and it finally expired in 1968. This yeah. code had been established in 1934 as a way of staving off the government, which was interested in perhaps intervening in movies or even censoring movies, and Hollywood didn't want any part of that. So they came up with this rule book, the production code, which told them what they couldn't say and what they couldn't show in movies. So profanity was out. Sexual situations were extremely limited. You right. couldn't show a married couple in bed together, for instance, even if they were clearly intimate in the movie, even if they already had kids in the movie. Yeah. They couldn't sleep in the same bed. Violence had to be suggested or implied. If somebody was shot, they were shot in the shadows or with their back to the camera or they quickly doubled over to cover up the wound. You didn't see any graphic violence. Right. And even the themes of the movies were controlled. The, mm. According to the old production code, the bad guys all had to be rounded up by the end of the movie <laughs> and punished. Yep. The criminals could not be allowed to get away with their crimes. And wow. Hollywood worked this way into the mid-60s. But by then, there's revolution in the air with civil rights and women's rights, flower power, people power, the youth movement, rock mm -hmm. music is getting angry sure. and profane. And a couple of the movies in the mid 60s are pushing up right against the boundary of the production code. Bonnie and Clyde was one. It took violence as far as you could go anymore. And Warner Brothers would have had to pull that movie out of theaters in 1967. Huh. And then The Graduate, also 1967, pushed sexual situations as far as you could go. There is a couple shown in bed, but they're either in the shadows or covered up or they're just talking, but that's mm -hmm. all they could get away with. But both of those movies won Oscars. They were both nominated for Best Picture and both were enormously popular. So clearly these were the movies that people yeah. wanted to see and that Hollywood wanted to make. So in 1968, they announced they were scrapping the old production code and they would make the movies that everybody really wanted. And the trade-off was they would apply these new rating symbols, the G, M, R, and X symbols. <laughs> right. So that you knew in advance what kind of movie you were getting. G was for kids, X-rated movies were for adults. In 1969 was the first year that you had these movies made with a new rating symbol. And the liberation really began right there. Bob Carroll... Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice put four people in bed right on the poster in full light. There was no hesitancy, no subtlety to it. 
as if they were announcing, come celebrate with us, look what we can do. The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah's artful Western celebrating this new possibility to show violence. So he has close-ups of shootings and slow motion shootings and blood flying through the air. Midnight Cowboy is so edgy that it gets an X rating. Yeah. But here in the very first year that you even have X-rated movies, Hollywood can't wait to anoint one <laughs> as Best Picture, and it wins the Oscar for Best Picture. And then finally, the biggest game changer was Easy Rider, which is made by two rebels, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, mm -hmm. clearly anti-establishment. And it's not just a low-budget movie. It's a no-budget movie where they're just charging expenses to credit cards, hoping the movie will be profitable sure. so they can pay it off. Yeah. And but they've got a really cool idea of these two hip guys on choppers cruising across America to complete a big drug deal and they're hassled by the man in every stop and there's awesome music on the soundtrack and their little $300,000 movie, which was minuscule even then, becomes an Oscar-nominated $40 million hit and Hollywood realizes, okay, there's no denying now, these young guys have really tapped into something. Yeah. And so they start hiring up all this fresh new talent just out of film school. So in the first few years of the 70s, you'll get the first movies made by Spielberg, Lucas, Jonathan Demme, who will later win for Silence of the Lambs, mm -hmm. Oliver Stone, who will later win for Platoon. New movies from these young superstar directors like William Friedkin, Peter Bogdanovich, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese. And with that, and uh, the arrival of this new young talent and the end of the archaic production code, you get this revolution. And that's really what I identified in the early 70s, the daring yeah. decade. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I think another part of it, too, is just the demographics of moviegoers was changing to a younger audience. Good point. Yeah, yeah. you're right. So I, I think it, it, you had uh, movies actually starting to finally target a younger generation. One thing that I heard, you know, was that, you know, right at the end of the 60s, early 70s, you're you're actually starting to target teenagers, you know, going to the movies and going out on those drives. And, and it was really the, the decade where the, the young adult mm -hmm. was coming into the, the movies. And I think th that kind of revolt of society and things like that was starting to really play into that same sort of young adult, I'm going to rebel and go out and do my own thing. I think that really is what resonated. And by targeting that specific audience, I think that's how these stories really came to be so popular mm -hmm. and so well received. That's a good point, Daniel. And the movies really were targeting this younger, more energetic audience that wanted a new kind of movie. So you get the first major movie that uses the F word, for yeah. instance, is MASH. MASH yeah. And right at the beginning, that's January of 1970 when that comes out, as if to usher in the decade with the possibilities of you know new expanded vocabularies. Mm -hmm. And once that door was open slightly, it only happens one time in that movie. Yeah, right in the middle of a football game. It's in the football game. Yep. A player barks it out. <laughs> and I was sitting in the theater at the time and we all nervously looked around like, wow, did you hear that? That's new. And yeah. we all sort of laughed a little bit. And once that door was open, Hollywood just kicked it open. Oh, yeah. And it was floodgates were open. Yeah. Totally. And yeah. So you've got all of these movies immediately that are just unloading this, you know, language. And even a sweet movie like Love Story uses bad language all through the movie. Right. And the twist for that movie is that it comes out of the mouth of the pretty girl. She's the one who swears in the movie. Right. So 
What what do you think are some of the more what do you think is like the most daring movie that came out though in the seventies? What do you think took the biggest risk that and had the biggest payoff in terms of just changing cinema for what it is? Gosh, that's a really good question. Um well MASH was one of those that everybody at the time pointed to. Yeah. It seemed to institute not just the possibility of a new vocabulary but a new vocabulary for filmmaking the way that Altman made that movie it seemed like it was unstructured and improvised mm. if you watch that movie in the surgery scenes you don't even know who's talking they're all wearing masks and that was intentional he just wanted you to be in the room and overhearing conversations you don't know where the conversation is coming from in the room you just hear voices and hear comments and he is just moving his camera around so that the person who is talking isn't even in the center of the frame. So it seemed like at the time, this revolutionary new approach to filmmaking and, and clearly he was trying to do that and he continued with that through all of his movies, but that's one right at the very beginning that took a big risk. It was not heralded as a big popular blockbuster movie right the studio was actually promoting torah 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 at the same time mm-hmm. and that's the one they thought was going to be the blockbuster but well that one kind of still i mean that one's still kind of attached to that mm-hmm. old hollywood system of Definitely. filmmaking yes yeah but audiences attached to this one yeah and it got nominated for best picture and won for best screenplay which is ironic because the screenwriter ring lardner later said there wasn't one word of my original <laughs> script yeah in the, in the on the actual on the screen when you actually right. watch the movie but he won for best screenplay that year well that's that's amazing um you know another uh thought that i, I i'm just thinking here is like you know also in the 70s i'm a, i'm a kid of the 80s i grew up with all the 80s movies you know things like that so these were all things that i watched on vhs tapes you know mm-hmm. 10 years after they were made um but it's like the other thing that I, I used to watch was, you know, a lot of television as a kid. And so, you know, I wasn't there in the 70s, but I I'm, can only imagine that with television also possibly playing a role in what was going on in film because you're creating a lot more content. The studios had to produce a lot more. And I think it's almost something that we are coming up with today in today's world where there's always content being produced everywhere we go. Everybody's got a miniature film studio in their pocket. It's called an iPhone and you can make anything anytime, anywhere. And I think that was kind of, um, the vibe that you got out of some of these movies too mm-hmm. was that some of them were ultra low budget. Mm-hmm. They just went out and they just wanted to make the movie just to make the movie. Yep. And it's just, you're going to go out there, you're going to just do it because that was just the way it was done. And that is a direct reaction to some of the catastrophic flops of the late sixties. Um, the studios were in turmoil in the last couple of years of the 1960s. Um, they had, made all of the studios, Columbia, Fox, MGM, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, had made some disastrous, expensive flops. Just, you know, Dr. Doolittle in 1967, Star in 1968, and Paint Mm -hmm. Your Wagon in 1969. I mean, those were expensive, complete disasters. Right. And Hollywood realized we can't keep going this in this direction. Um, Fox was in such trouble that they sold off much of their actual real estate where they made the movies. If you drive down Pico Boulevard today in Los Angeles, you go past those Century City Towers, which are on the old Fox back lot. And MGM was on the brink of bankruptcy Mm -hmm. in 1969. 
they too sold off all their acreage from their back lot where they made the movies and developers put up condominiums for Culver City. They even had an auction of their historic costumes and artifacts. You know, the ruby slippers get sold off in 1970 for $15,000, not millions, but $1,000. The studio executives, many of them um, were let go, fired, reassigned. Disney didn't lose, didn't reassign its exec, uh, its the head of its studio, but unfortunately Walt died in 1966. I was going to say, Disney's interesting because they mm. went through a big change as well. Disney kind of had that, that, that what slump, it was known for, yeah. but then once Walt died, mm-hmm. there they was slumped. a huge yeah. change in, in what they were doing. Definitely. They still continued with their animated classics, 1970 is the Aristocats, and that is a good movie. 1973, they do Robin Hood, which isn't as successful, but uh, they were still trying, and they made these pretty simple and and very childish silly kind of live action comedies that's where they really shifted to making herbie you know, the boatniks <laughs> and and the million dollar duck which is these are all these movies are in the book by the way i mean they are part of that generation sure, that yeah. time so i cover all of these but admittedly these are pretty weak movies though they do try it is funny to watch them they do try to stay current so as lame as the plot is they're wearing really colorful psychedelic costumes or <laughs> Dean Jones who was in those her, the first Herbie movie in 1968 and he looks like a very traditional father figure in uh, the early 70s when he's in movies he's got bangs he's like trying to go with a sort of a Beatles look and it's kind of funny <laughs> so they are trying to stay current but it really right. they aren't very successful at it now, I, I also know, you know, your book covers American films that are made, mm-hmm. but this revolution was not just American films. I mean, I'm I'm thinking in my head, one of my, you know, favorite films to watch uh, are the Monty Python films, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't think that those movies would have flown at all if it wasn't for what was going on in Hollywood mm-hmm. and just in the culture in, in Western society of just, you know, being a little more open and mm-hmm. you know being able to get out there and i mean even um the james bond films yeah. you know when when they're coming out in that time you i don't think you would get what those films they just wouldn't happen mm-hmm. you know i think they would be laughed at and yeah. and when you're starting to put these more kind of action-packed risque things mm-hmm. um you know those action movies of the 80s and 90s that i grew up with would never have happened mm-hmm. so i mean there's a lot of things that were happening all around um and and I also got to say that this is uh, I am a huge Mel Brooks fan, mm-hmm. and I I think Blazing Saddles is yeah. definitely one of my absolute favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny story, I, I'll I'll put this out there, and and uh, this is thanks to my mom. She just told me the story. Uh, w- way back in the day, you know, she was a young adult in the seventies, and uh, they had misprinted the movie theater's um, phone number. Uh, in the newspaper, it was her home phone number. And so she got all these phone calls, people trying to call, find out the times. And she finally got to the point where she was just writing down the numbers of, you know, what's the show time so this she could a, tell them. This is a Steinfeld episode, isn't it? I, well, mo- uh, it could, phone. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> but my mom, she, she was literally telling people, oh, yeah, if you want to see this movie, it's at 530 or so, you know, oh all these things. God. And then finally, one day she got a call and um, the guy asked her all these questions. And then he goes, how long have you been doing this? And she goes, oh, you know, it's been... You 
couple weeks. You know, the newspaper hasn't changed. The th-. he goes, oh well, I'm the theater manager. Oh my! <laughs> and she's like, he's like, why are you doing this? Oh no, you know, just helping out. So, anyways, he gave her uh, tickets. You know, oh, thank you for doing this. We'll fix the issue. Come and watch a movie. And Blazing Saddles just happened to be what was on. And she remembered that. You know, it. it people were walking out of it. They mm-hmm. were just so stunned by mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. this movie was doing. But, you know, other people were just sitting there just laughing, yeah, just but, just absolutely just having a great time with it. Yeah, and I clearly remember being in the theater watching that movie. My friends and I just roared with laughter and immediately snuck back in so that we could... <laughs> Go and memorize all the good lines. That right. Them at school. But <laughs> of course. That is a revolutionary movie. And I do spotlight that in the book that uh, Mel Brooks is turning racism on its head in that movie. Every he, line. He didn't hold back from anybody, though. That was the thing. Everybody got knocked. That's his that yep. is his joke in the movie is that when you are making fun of every nationality, every line of the movie, there's an insult or an <laughs> ethnic slur against somebody, a right. religion, a nationality, some organization. Everybody gets hit. But that's his joke. If everybody is a target, no one group can be more offended than any other exactly. group in theory because in but reality, was, many people were offended well, of course, and walked out. But it was a revolutionary take on mm-hmm. how to even approach a, com- mm-hmm. a comedy like yes. that. And his point becomes clear at the end of the movie. All of those racists and bigots in the movie are labeled as morons in the movie. They actually call <laughs> right. them morons. Yep. And at the end of the movie, they're all defeated. They're either dead or dispersed. And the victor, the one who wins, is the dignified black sheriff. Mm-hmm. That's who Mel Brooks really reveres. You know, yep. That's who he respects in the movie. So he's just playing with this idea of racism, but uh, he does it in such a hilarious way. It, it was uh, for a while the most popular comedy ever made. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's uh, and, and nominated for Oscars. I mean, it was a big movie, and that's huge. I I think when when the Academy got involved, and I mean, you, even just going back to Mash. Mm-hmm, I mean, looking mm-hmm. at well, they're nominating these movies that are mm-hmm. extremely controversial. You know, we think today, you know, oh, sometimes the Academy is going to make some controversial mm-hmm, moves, mm-hmm. but they've been doing this for a while. They have. They were. Um, you mentioned earlier some like more intimate personal movies as a uh, response to the big budget movies mm-hmm. that had been made in the 60s and before then. Um, so a, a small intimate drama like Five Easy Pieces, for instance, which is a piece of art. That movie is just so well done and and it's so powerful. But it is a very small, low-budget, intimate movie. But it was nominated for Oscars, and yeah. and it became a hit. People were responding to movies like that. They wanted to see, you know, more realistic, grittier themes and topics, not the big old-fashioned kinds of uh, right. spectacles. You know, and that's a that's an interesting point too, because when people are wanting these grittier, low-budget mm-hmm. things, I suddenly my head just goes straight to like grindhouse movies. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to see these really just horror films Mm -hmm. and just the there's a quality to i'm trying to think of how to phrase this because you know tarantino did a a grindhouse film and Mm -hmm. actually shot it here on the central coast um death proof and but he's trying to recreate what it was like using you know film stock that's cheap Mm -hmm. and you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't look as good you're using cameras that are clunky and the things aren't aren't kicking as well and the editing isn't smooth exactly and that's what i love about his movies particularly is that he evokes the 70s i mean you look at the Jackie Brown is a classic yeah. example, but the Kill Bill movies are using <laughs> the, these 
elements from a genre that was really born in the 70s. They use the music from the 70s. Yep. Uh, some of the actual stars from the 70s are in these movies. And uh, that's what I, why I loved um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, oh, just yeah. takes you right back to that era. He is so good at evoking the life, the scenery. You don't even have to have the sound on for that movie. It was just fun to watch it yeah. and to look at the costumes and the backgrounds and the cars. I mean, that's what makes his movies so good is that he is so detailed in his approach to them. Yeah, and and I, you know, there's uh, there's no um, aesthetic like mm -hmm. the 70s. Mm -hmm. I think that was, um, you know, there's definitely, when you see uh, an image from the 70s, you mm -hmm. know it's the 70s. Yeah. You know, even in today's world, I would even argue from mid-2000s uh, to now, there's not much in terms of like style or things that you could point to. If you look at a photo, it could be anywhere in the last 10, 15 mm -hmm, years. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's the 70s, you know it's the 70s. I know. When you look at those movies, you realize they weren't just popular movies. These were totally influential movies that launched genres. I mean, there are yeah. popular movies now, but they don't launch a genre. I could name a half a dozen genres that started between 1970 and 1974. Muscle car movies, because mm -hmm. gas was so cheap, suddenly every Everybody wanted a car that went yep. 200 miles per hour to get to work. <laughs> yep. So with all these super fast cars, there was a rise of movies like Vanishing Point, for instance, or Two Lane Blacktop that are just making the cars the stars of the movie. Well, yeah, even the French Connection, like you said, oh. it, you know, it's got that mm -hmm. car chase, which yep. is still an amazing thing to watch. Here's another one. Slasher movies. Yeah. Those started with Last House on the Left in 1972 and then continued with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In 1974, where you have a maniac with a knife or a chainsaw running around after teenagers, that right. genre launched in the 19, early 1970s. You know, and it's interesting because we didn't get, you know, the horror films before that mm -hmm. were very much of like a Hitchcockian sort of feel and vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, there was still a lot of structure. There was still a lot of art, I would even say, mm -hmm, to it. Mm -hmm. um, but the... In the 70s is when things really started to change, when you started to see the gore, you started to see uh, things, and, mm -hmm. and you, I think that was a whole new level of terrifying. I mean, you don't talk to about it in this volume, but Jaws, again, mm -hmm. was another mm -hmm. one of those where it was just so scary, but I think it kind of played with it where you don't actually see the shark, and it's almost scarier mm -hmm. in your mind. But, yeah, it is. but going back to slashers, it, it's, um, I think what they also discovered was in the 70s, they made those cheap. You know, they weren't they weren't uh, uh, expensive movies to make, but people would go to it and suddenly the horror film became the most profitable genre. That's right. Um, they were cheap to make and they had a huge return. And I think that was and that's still true today mm -hmm. in many aspects. And so I, I think horror films will always continue to have a, uh, uh, a, a permanent staple spot mm -hmm. in today's culture. But all thanks to what happened in the 70s. That's really the the elimination of the production code. They were suddenly liberated to show graphic violence. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that you had bloodier shootings or more knifings. They were inventing new kinds of carnage. Here's an example, A Man Called Horse in 1970. It's a very interesting Western. A white man is captured by Indians and he becomes sympathetic to the tribe and he decides that he wants to join. But to do that, he has to undergo this harrowing ritual, which is shown in a very long sequence in full light and yeah. in close up. And it was excruciating to watch. I could barely watch it in the middle of this sequence, which lasts like five or six minutes. There's a flash of psychedelic imagery, which is him passing out in the middle of 
enduring this excruciating agony. But as a kid watching that in the theater, and there's this, I'm barely watching the scene because it is so nauseating. Yeah. There's a flash of psychedelic imagery, and I thought, okay, is he passing out or am I passing out? Is that is that me hallucinating right, because right. it is so intense? And I actually nudged the person next to me like, you can see that, right? It's not just me. Yeah, you know, and it, that's actually, it's an interesting point. It's, it's production companies were freed up in terms of what they could do, but in a way they had to retrain mm-hmm. what audiences had to see it as you know what what is the perspective now is it changing or what am i what am i seeing because you know is this supposed to be like an acid trip is this supposed to be something that you know we're we're going way out there or is it you know subjective it's it, it, it's just interesting how the audience views movies differently after the 70s that's true they the expectations change like you just said um they kept pushing the boundaries from year to year. Things just got more and more extreme. Um, for instance, uh, Harold and Maude, 1971. We had seen movies where there was uh, a relationship between a younger man and an older woman. Sunset right. Boulevard, 1950. Mm-hmm. The Graduate, 1967. Last Picture Show, younger man, older woman. But Hollywood takes it to an extreme. Here's a 20-year-old kid with a 79-year-old woman, and they're in bed together. It's yeah. a, tasteful and it's a beautiful sweet movie there's nothing graphic it's not an x-rated movie sure. or anything but it's clear what's happening in the movie but that's what hollywood was doing was we're not going to just mismatch this couple so that it's a younger man older woman how far can we take this you know zabriskie point in 1970 ushers in the decade with this new sexual situation where it's a road trip movie and a couple's going to the actual zabriskie point in death valley and when they get there all of these naked couples emerge out of the desert and start engaging in very vigorous interactivity. Yep. And there's no sleeping bags, or no blankets or sheets. They are right out in the open in full sunlight. And it's clear what's happening. It's not an X-rated movie. It's not in slow motion or in close-up. But we understand what's going on in the scene. And sure. suddenly with this new liberated approach to what they could show, Hollywood thought... Okay, well, let's not just have one couple out in the desert that they can see. Let's have 30 couples. You know, they immediately take it to everything yeah, to an extreme. Yeah. So it, it was that idea that not just what can we do, but how far can we go with this idea? Sure, sure. Well, and I think without them taking that chance and that risk, we definitely wouldn't have a lot of movies we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going to be coming up in volume two. So what are you excited for? Because this book is coming out in a couple months. Mm -hmm. End of the summer. End of the summer. Um, Well, you're going to get the big blockbusters that will really revolutionize the business of Hollywood. There were successful movies in the early 70s, and we identified a couple, but... uh, Well, they say the box box office uh, blockbuster... Mm -hmm was invented in the 70s. And you can point to the opening weekend of Jaws in 1975 and then two years later when Star Wars opens. And those two movies just really changed the business of Hollywood. Suddenly summer was the big blockbuster season. The Godfather had come out in March and The Exorcist came out late in the year. Mm-hmm. Suddenly summer was the big season and, for blockbusters. And I think that what these films did um, didn't just necessarily change the the box office or the production Hollywood world. I think it changed American culture. I think the blockbuster, 
um, it, it really changed the way that we went to the movies. And I mean, we as Americans, I mean, it, to me, I think in our culture, movies are right up there with uh, hamburgers and fries. <laughs> like it, it's just, it's part of our DNA. It's just what we do. We go to the movies. We love movies. Um, and that's why they are so dang popular. Um, but I think it, it is because of the box uh, the blockbuster mm-hmm. and that movement and everyone being able to go um, to a movie and sharing the same experience, mm-hmm. be it if you're in California or New York and everywhere in between. That's right. And not just that you could see the movie, but you could enjoy it in different ways. Everybody had loved Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. Sure. Those were big, major record sure, setting sure. blockbusters, but nobody was buying Terra action figures or wearing <laughs> right. Sound of Music pajamas well, to bed, know, but you could do that with Star Wars. It, suddenly, it was this explosion of merchandise. I was going to say merchandising yeah. is is something that I think really happened in the seventies as well, mm-hmm. where you started getting action figures and lunch boxes and things like that, where you could buy and take it home. That mm-hmm. was from the movies. I don't think that really happened before then. That's true. You could suddenly soundtrack albums yeah records you bring the records home for Greece uh, Saturday Night Fever all that happens in the late 70s Um, so new ways to celebrate and enjoy the movie even if you have only seen the movie once but Mm -hmm. you can now bring it home and celebrate it in other ways and then another 10 years you had vcrs and you and just VCRs. <laughs> but also the surge of special effects i mean right that yeah. that had really started to change in the early 70s westworld in 1973 the movie about right. robots who um, malfunction at a theme park and they start killing the guests as robots always will in these <laughs> right. but that's the first movie with cgi which is in every movie now but uh-huh. that was the first one well this uh, rise of computers for special effects, new camera lenses, new cameras. The steady cam is invented in 1975. Yeah. All of this comes together for Star Wars. And from here on, we get special effects movies and these big blockbusters where Hollywood realized we don't need to make 10 small, intimate movies and hope for profits. Let's focus on one major movie. Right. Whether well, it's Back to the Future or, <laughs> or whatever it is. Well, in the Hollywood system, they were cranking out, I mean, a movie from script to screening would be 12 months in time. Mm-hmm. It, nowadays, it's three years yeah. to, to make a, a film. So I think that that's also where that's kind of started to change and where it's like, okay, let's let's plan this out a little bit better, make it a big spectacle and mm-hmm. make a big splash and try and get that that you know, blockbuster, you know, money mm-hmm. that rolls mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So, and, but I think again, it's because of those films that created the culture for it. Well, all that is coming in the second half. Of there the you go. So coming, I mean, coming yeah, very soon. I mean, it will be jaws and apocalypse now. I mean, there's a revolutionary. Movie. Oh yeah. It's like takes the war movie as far as you can go. Um, um, Saturday night fever in Greece. I mentioned those. I mean, <laughs> right. They're different genres, but they were extremely successful and Oscar-winning, Oscar-nominated movies. Sure. So uh, it's a it's an exciting time, and I can't really pick which half of the decade I prefer. But boy, that second half with those movies that we've mentioned really becomes powerful. Well, we're looking forward to that. Where can we find your books? I guess the easiest way is Amazon. Um, that's always the fallback position right. is just go to Amazon and you'll see it there. All right. Well, we'll make the, sure to have a link for it. As, daring as well. Decade. That's what it's called. Daring Decade. All yeah. right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for coming with us and hope to talk to you soon again. Daniel, thank you. It was a lot of fun. All right.
So before we wrap up, I want to make sure that you're aware uh, that our Central Coast Film Society events, our lineup uh, has either, everything's been either postponed or canceled um, for the near future, but plans are still going ahead for the Central Coast Film Festival, and that's to happen later this year at the end of September. But of course, that's pending how this bug decides to cooperate. And But uh, I tell you, I, I definitely think this would be a warm welcome after uh, everything that's been going on. So listen for more details or check us out on social media as well. In the meantime, we'll keep making these episodes of Take 18 for you. Um, make sure, uh, again, to reach out with any questions or comments or any movies that you want me to review. Um, or let me know like what you and your uh, quarantine pals are doing at home right now. Are you What, what shows are you watching? Are you watching TV? Are you watching uh, a franchise? franchise uh, trilogies or you know what are you what are you watching let me know um so again you can message me on the description of the video down below And that's going to be a wrap on this edition of Take 18. Again, this has been a production of the Central Coast Film Society. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I do this for free. I don't get paid for it. But we couldn't make this show or anything that we do uh, possible without, of course, your general generous support. So um, during this time, you know, if you want to help make a difference, please consider making a donation. Uh, you can purchase a membership to the Film Society. Um, of course, when our events are back up and running, come and visit. <laughs> <laughs> or you can visit our website, centralcoastfilmsociety.org. For more information, you can sign up for a newsletter, follow us on social media, uh, where we have near 3,000 followers on uh, Facebook. So I just want to give a shout out to you guys. Thanks so much. And of course, I want to thank again Chris Strotter for taking his time to come out uh, earlier this uh, month, just before the uh, quarantine went into effect here in California, uh, for coming and talking to us. That was a lot of fun, and we are definitely looking forward to doing it again when your uh, uh, new edition comes out for the second half of the 1970s. And again, a uh, special thanks to the Santa Maria Sun for spotlight spotlighting this show. Um, I hope all of you new listeners that are tuning in uh, enjoyed this. Come back and check us out some more. Um, I also want to say thank you for listening all the way to the end. So make sure you subscribe and share with everyone. And that's how you can really help us. It just takes a few clicks and you've done it. So thank you. Thank you again for all your support. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And like always, that's a take. <laughs>